Hello, this is Scott Jens. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. Hello, welcome to the Sandbox Story, which is an interview with Dr. Jacoby Cleaver, an optometrist with the Baylor College of Medicine Department of Ophthalmology, and also part of the leadership team with Black Eye Care Perspective. Dr. Cleaver, welcome to Sandbox Stories. Hey, Scott, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's just a thrill. I, we didn't know each other. We got introduced, and uh, I've really enjoyed getting to know you, and I know the audience will, too. You're from Odessa, Texas. I believe that's the home of Friday Night Lights. It is. It is. Uh, uh, the book came out first, I want to say, in the uh, 80s or late 70s sometime. And then they did the movies in the early, uh, well, they did the movie in the early 2000s. But uh, I, I never watched the TV show, the sitcom. Uh, but uh, I think that was loosely, more loosely based off of the movie and the uh, and the book. But yeah, um, you know, you it used to be a pretty big deal, man. You know, uh, Friday night, if, if Permian, my, my high school was uh, uh, playing uh, OHS, the Odessa High School, which is the rivalry school uh, across the other side of town. You know, the shit is just such, shuts down completely, completely. And, um, you know, people take off work. You almost treat it like a holiday. And, uh, it, man, those, the, the stadium at the time was uh, it's Ratliff Stadium, and you can feel so many people in there. You could just, on one side... Uh, for the OHS side, it was always a sea of red. On the Permian side, it was always a sea of black. Best thing ever. Best, I, if you ever, if you ever got the chance to see it, you could appreciate it that much more. But it was also, uh, it was also pretty intense whenever we played Midland Lee and Midland High because those teams were pretty good uh, back at those times too. So especially Midland Lee, you know, around that time they won a couple of championships and you know uh, those kind of things. But yeah, man, it was, uh, it was exciting. It was exciting. I've never played, obviously. Uh, you know, I was just. Obviously. I was better suited. Yeah, well, no, you know, I, I'm like most people. I didn't gain my weight till I got a, uh, you know, till I got out of college and stuff. Well, I gained my weight in college, right? So, uh, but no, I, I was better suited to watch it from the fan, uh, from the stands. Like I'm a much better fan than I am a uh, player. I, I can guarantee you that. So I was looking at Odessa on Google Maps, and there's all these dirt roads with little dirt zones around and all over town, even in town. Mm -hmm. Do each of those represent an oil well? Yes and no. Okay. Um, now, see, you know, uh, I, I think the misconception about Odessa is that it's not very developed. No, it's it's, it's very much a small town, po paved streets and everything. But on the outskirts of town, there's definitely, you know, oil rigs and those kind of things. But, rigs. Uh, you know, with the industry being mainly oil, you know, oil and football out there. But, uh, you know, uh, it just kind of comes and goes. Like one, one year uh, – for a long time, it'll be great, and then you'll go through a boom, and uh, then all of a sudden, you'll go through where just the bottom kind of falls out, and then, you know, everybody leaves, and then when it comes back to the next boom, they come right back into town. So it's, it's just one of those things. Uh, um, but, yeah, one one year, it must have been a couple of years ago, things were starting to slow down with the oil and gas industry out there. And my parents picked me up from the airport, and we were driving home, and uh, my dad said, Kobe, look over there. And I looked over uh, at this uh, vacant lot and it had it had to have at least 50 oil rigs just stashed there like they were just storing them uh that's how much the business has slowed down out there you know and, and, and my dad was like yeah if you ever see that then that's not a good sign <laughs> you know so uh but no uh this it was a oh this is a great place um but my grandfather used to tell us when we was young like this isn't a place for young people. So as soon as you, as soon as you can, you need to get out of here. So, you know, of course we graduated high school and I did a couple of uh, undergraduate years at a junior college out there. And then they kicked us out of there. They kicked me and my brother out of there. They wow. said, uh, go somewhere, <laughs> they say, wow. go somewhere. Uh, uh, you know, just pick somewhere on the map and go. And then, uh, that's how I ended up in Houston, mainly because we had family out here, but, uh, yeah, there's, you know, you can't stay here. And, and they was right. They was right. It just wasn't, a, it wasn't a lot of, my my folks believe that if you you in order for you to grow, like you need to experience different things, different people, different cultures, all that kind of thing. So, you know, as a kid, 17, 18 year old, you don't understand that. You just man, my mom and dad want me to leave. <laughs> you know, and it's, it seems kind of harsh, but, you know, it, it makes all the sense, you know, as you go and you get to experience these things. So you're a twin. You're the oldest of four. 
Yes, yes, yes. I'm a twin. Uh, I'm older than him by uh, three minutes. At least that's what my my, my parents tell us. Uh, I'm, I'm not even. I'm not completely convinced that I'm Jacoby. You know, I, I may be Giovanni. We, we might have got switched it. <laughs> we might have got switched at birth. But uh, yeah, so I'm the oldest of four. Uh, my my twin brother. He lives here in Houston as well. He works for finance uh, with uh, one of the hospitals here. Um, my middle brother Chasley is still in Odessa. He's like a car salesman guru. Like he can sell you anything. So if you're interested in the car, he can definitely get you uh, fixed up. And then uh, my baby brother Evan. Uh, he's a pharmacist here, but uh, I think he's getting ready to move to Phoenix. You know, you know, to continue his career out there, which is which is fine. He's he's a young guy; he doesn't have anything holding him down. Go for it, go for it. Are you identical twins? Uh, or... Identical. Are you okay? Yes, sir, identical. All right. And uh, and which is weird. My uh, my grandfather was a twin, uh, and I have uh, an uncle that's a twin. Uh, so, you know. They say it skips a generation. I'm, I'm, you know, if I if I ever get to the point where I have kids, I hope that's true. Uh, <laughs> you know, you know, I, don't, I don't know how you can handle two uh, two little people running around and changing diapers and all that kind of stuff. But my my folks was able to do it, and and uh, hats off to them. You know. Do you have that uh, sort of instinctual connection with your twin brother? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's kind of hard to explain, uh, but you know, just kind of give you. Uh, like a little background, like, so I, I, you know, my brother and we all keeping really good contact with each other, um, text every day or something like that. But when it comes to Giovanni, I, I find myself talking to him like five, six, seven times a day about absolutely nothing at all. Like none of like about six of those conversations have nothing to do with nothing. And then out of one, then we can find something to really talk about, like a topic to really, really go in on, right? But yeah, but it, uh, it's, it's weird how that, how, that, uh, how that works out. But yeah, sometimes, you know, I, I can kind of, I don't want to say I know what he's thinking, but, you know, just hanging out with somebody from the womb till now, like you, you have to pick up some of the characteristics, like, you know, the traits, you know, it's quirks and all those kind of things. But yeah, uh, even when we, uh, when we first went to, uh, grade school my mom was telling us uh, you know that uh, you guys aren't going to be in the same class and we're like yeah it's not a big deal but you know she dropped us off that first day and neither one of us went into our classroom we just stood in the hall and cried like yeah this, like, this is grade school stuff this separating us is not going to work you know uh, it, it took uh it took it took at least two or three weeks of my mom walking us to each, you know, to our classes separately uh, in order for us to get the flow of that. But, you know, by that time, you, you start recognizing the other kids in your class and they, they become your friends. And then, they, you know, that kind of helps you, uh, you know, be familiar with the, with the territory and the situation. But, yeah, before it, it took at least three weeks. And uh, I, I knew my mom wasn't happy with it. But, I mean, what, what can you do, man? Like, she, she's the one that had twins, not me. <laughs> my, my aunts were identical twins. And... Mm -hmm. That that story is one that I'm you know, only familiar with through them. But you hear it, you've seen, I've seen movies about it. You know, you love all your siblings, but mm -hmm. you have this person that's an identical fingerprint to you in the world, and it's it's just fantastic uh, right. to hear you tell those stories. Right. So you, when you were a kid, you won a go kart. How did that happen? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I don't. Yeah, it was at an auto zone. So uh, me, me and my brother, we must have been about two or three. We were super young, and uh, my dad had a, a older family member. So my, my dad's the youngest of all his siblings. So everyone's older than he is. So they had an older uh, family member. Uh, they went to AutoZone, and that you know that was back then. They say win a go kart, put your name in a box or something. So uh, you know uh, the family member put put her name in there, but uh, you know she didn't think she was going to win it or anything. So she put Turbo. The name Turbo on the uh, on the card, so they called her and they said, "Hey, uh, Miss Turbo, you want a go kart? Come down and pick it up." So she called my dad, and uh, he said, "Yeah, I, I go get it." And she said, "Well, you need to tell him your name is Turbo." And my dad said, "Who is Turbo?" She said, "That's the that's my that's the name of my dog." She said, oh, he said, oh, no problem, no problem. So we go up there, and, he, and before we get out there, I get, he either told myself or my brother to say, go up there and tell him your name is Turbo so we can get the go-kart. <laughs> and, man, we drove that thing until the wheels fall off. And my dad still has it stored in the shop. It, I mean, it's, it's all tore up and dinged up and dented and everything. I mean, we used to drive it and, and you know, and, and peel out and go all over the place. It's just because my dad was uh, – 
he was a motorcycle guy, right? So okay. uh, those things excited him. Uh, I, I never, I never liked motorcycles just because of the sound. You know, they was just as a kid, the noise is so loud; it just amplified when you're a kid. So I was like, we never got on that. But uh, he had gotten an accident one time, and he uh, he slid and he skinned up his shoulder pretty bad. Like, uh, and uh, my mom said, uh, "Well, you need to decide if you're gonna be a, uh, if you're gonna be a full time father and provider, or you want to ride go uh, you want to ride motorcycles." He told it the next day. <laughs> Tell me about your mom. Mom, mom, yeah. So she uh, she's from Midland, Texas, which is about twenty minutes from uh, Odessa. So, like I said, those are kind of like robbery robbery cities in uh, in themselves. But uh, yeah, wonderful, wonderful woman. Like she uh, uh, she for a long time she was working at one of the junior colleges out there, uh, universities out there as a affirmative action uh, coordinator. You know, right around when affirmative action was uh, starting to pick up steam and those kind of things. But she also would uh, on the side she would help uh, people get their GEDs. Like she would just kind of do that on her own time. Uh, but you know, as as uh, you know, the family expanded, and you know, she she stepped away from that and uh, gave more of her time uh, to the family. You know, rightfully so. Like it's kind of hard to get four people, four boys going in the same direction, right? So, but she but she was able. She's uh, she's the general uh, of the house. Like she just runs everything. So it, like even the, even today, like. I still, we still get like these Valentine's Day cards or whatever. And it has a little gift card in there, like uh, $15 or $20 to Chick-fil-A or something. Right. And, uh, you know, we all go in there and we say, oh, mom, uh, uh, oh, uh, mom and dad, thanks. And then my dad would say, that wasn't me. It was all your mom. Like, thank you. Be sure you, <laughs> be sure you thank her. But, you know, you, you would think in, in a house full of all, you know, all that testosterone that, you know, she would somehow get drowned. You know, you know how it is. It's just she's, 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 she's too strong for that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, uh, that, that's what it is. Uh, if she walks in the room uh, or she tells you to do something, like you need to get up and do it now, and she's not going to ask you any more than once. <laughs> you know? But uh, no, uh, great, uh, great woman, uh, wonderful sense of humor, um, and, I, and I get that from her. But she, she's a jokester, just like my dad is. Both of them are jokesters, but they have, but they know how to have a good time too. You know, uh, they, they really really kind of serious on the uh, on the outskirts but inside they really know how to uh, unwind and have a good time and, and your dad did community service he was a councilman in town yeah 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 so he did a council he ran for councilman when we was uh, I want to say in high school and he did it for quite some time uh, that was before uh, they set up the term limits and everything I want to say he went for about eight or ten years with it uh, and uh you know, on the on the time we was, you know, we were staying in District One, which is the the South Side, and uh, he really wanted to. And he actually, my, you know, uh, this sounds kind of funny, but my father was born and raised in Odessa. He was born and raised on the same street. Uh, you know, my my grandfather, uh, my grandmother stayed directly across the street from us. So when my father came, you know, he got married and he built a house in the vacant lot right directly across the street. On the other side of my grandmother was his aunt's. Her sister was on both sides. So we had a whole street uh, of, uh, of family. But, uh, yeah, he did the council uh, the council thing. And his whole thing was trying to uh, – he wanted to bring back some things for Odessa, for the south side. Uh, he worked on getting uh, a nice recreation park, a nice pool, you know, those kind of things that the kids can really take advantage of, you know. Uh, and like I said, he did that for about eight or ten years. But uh, what I've learned from, from that was that um, – that's why it's important to have a seat at the table, right? If you're not there, then there's someone making decisions on your behalf based on what they think you need. If you're at the table, you can tell them what you need. So that's so that's what with the message in that was because you know if I, you know, coming up, right, my dad's no politician and he's and he's not, <laughs> but uh, but he, but he's seen uh, uh, he he took it as an opportunity to uh, to make a difference and he definitely did. So and uh, it definitely wasn't for the money. I think he said he might have been getting like ten dollars per meeting or something. He said that was, at that time it wasn't enough to put gas in his truck, so <laughs> to go back and forth to the meeting. So I'd like to cover your path into optometry next. So you attended Salus uh, PCO, mm -hmm. but you weren't accepted into optometry school on the first try. Why not? That uh, I wasn't the best applicant. Simple, you know, simple, uh, simple and plain. Uh, I applied to two schools, uh, and one of them was Salus. Uh, but the difference was when I didn't get accepted in the Salus, and I asked for feedback, they provided me the feedback. 
So, you know, uh, go, of course, you know, go retake the OAT. We, we know you can do a little bit better. Uh, if, since, you, if, since you're not coming to school this year, you know, maybe you want to retake a couple of these anatomy courses at a junior college. Don't spend a lot of money on them. And then they also offered me the chance to go participate in the summer enrichment program, which is kind of, uh, kind of like an immersive uh, optometry program. You're just getting your feet wet for like six weeks. Hey, yeah, I, yeah, sure, I'll go. It's six weeks. I mean, all I had to do was pay for my flight to get out there. <laughs> they put us up in housing and everything else. Like, it was almost a no-brainer. But uh, from that experience, I want to say that was back in 2006. Um, from that experience, then the following year, you know, I, I applied. You know, I retook the OAT, retook some classes, and, uh, and uh, applied. Salus was the only school I applied to my second time around. And then, you know, they accepted me. But, you know, I felt like they took a chance on me. Uh, so, um you know, that's why I felt like I'd do the best at it. And then it was a good time. It was a really good time. That says something about you as a person that you took that as a challenge. And, and you know, there's sort of this overgeneralization that some recent generations are a little bit of a, if you don't give me the, you know, first place trophy, even if I'm not in first place, I don't want right. to do it. I'm going to go home with my, you know, my tail between my legs. You went for it. What what, what got you that uh, that initiative? Man, uh, uh, you have to be, I mean, life is going to throw you some curveballs. So you have to be resilient. Uh, and uh, going back to Salas, the most important thing you can do at any at any juncture in your life, if you apply for something and you don't get accepted, ask for feedback. You know, this is a form of constructive criticism. So maybe they didn't take you this time, but maybe they'll take you next time like they did with me. Once you, you know, you take the feedback to heart and, and you go back and make some improvements. Nobody's nobody's can go without them improving. I mean, nobody's perfect, right? So, and uh, and I always kind of joke, even with the uh, members of the club. I, you know, my career to optometry, I took the scenic route. You know, did you? You know, there was no way, Scott. Let me tell you. So, I had graduated uh, from University of Houston, and they, and like I said, I was into this gap year because I didn't get accepted. Man, I was. I was valet parking cars at a hotel in this Houston heat, man. And, uh, you know, and I, when I told them I was, uh, I had the chance to go to the summer program, the company I was working for at the time, man, they said, Cleaver, go. And they let me go. I mean, they, they didn't have to do that. They could have told me, all right, just pick up your last paycheck on whatever and, and, uh, and good luck to you. But, you know, they let me go and they let me come back. But you have to be resilient in life. It, it's not always going to go the way you want it to. And, and that's fine. You know, that's, that builds character. Or you can go with your tail between your legs and go whimper in the corner somewhere while somebody else is making the improvements to take that spot. Right. So, you know, if, if, it's, if it's one spot to fill, then it might as well be you, you need to go after it. And, and that's the message I try to uh, relate to the uh, members in the club. Uh, and even with um, finishing salads, I wanted to do a residency. I, I applied for a few of them and, and went on the interview. I thought I crushed them. Uh, evidently not. I didn't match at all for any of them. Yeah, I think yeah, <laughs> I think you had like three uh, three choices, three top choices. Nope, none of them, none of them. I, I was I was upset, I was devastated. But then you let the smoke clear, and then you know there's some pro. You know, even though I didn't match, there's also some programs that didn't match as well. So you know, I looked at the program. Hey, well, you know, well Cleaver, where do you want to go? Uh, Arizona? Uh, I don't know about that. Yeah, Amarillo, Texas. Uh, yeah, I've been there once before. That that could work. That's not too far. Well, it's not too far from uh, Odessa. It's about four hours uh, north of Odessa, and uh, you know, it's, it's still within flying to come back and forth to Houston. You know, at the time I wasn't I wasn't married. I was uh, engaged. You know, so you know, you kind of got to make decisions. You know, as if you are a married man, right? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah. So so she was uh, she was cool with that. I went to Amarillo. Uh, you know, they, you know, I interviewed. They accepted me. I went to Amarillo, and it was you know, it was. The, it was the best decision I ever made. I mean, you know, if if you if the purpose is to fulfill a residency, then it really doesn't matter where you do it at. If it's in primary care inocular disease, like I wanted wanted it to be, it didn't matter where I, if I was at this VA or the next VA. You know, you they go where they accept you. You know, they welcomed me with open arms, and, and uh, Dr. Trout and Dr. O'Connor were very good uh, preceptors for me. They gave me some really good advice. I learned a lot, and uh, I'm back in Houston, just like that. I tell you what, that resilience and that fortitude is something that uh, has to have come from those incredible people that brought you up to make you the man you are. And I, I just uh, want to congratulate you on that journey. And so let's talk about that, right? Your, your practice with Baylor involves work with Harris County in a community health setting. And I don't think most optometrists understand what goes on in a community health center. So educate us. Right, right. Yeah. So uh, when 
you know, uh, the funny story is that when I, I finished my residency and then uh, I was working for uh, Dr. Lagunas out here and a great guy, great guy, hired me right out of the residency. Uh, but he ended up selling this. He had four practices at the time. Two of them was commercial. He ended up selling his two commercial practices, which just happened to be the one I was uh, working in. Man, I literally, Scott, I done a Google search. I just kind of typed in uh, optometrists at hospital, you know, because I was so familiar with working at the VA and those kind of things. And the VA does, the VA hires, but you have to kind of catch them when they hire because those ODs get in those jobs and they stay there forever. Yeah. Right? <laughs> you know, so right. you got to kind of catch somebody while they're retiring. But, you know, I did that. I went to the interview and the interview was at Martin Luther, it wasn't even at Baylor. It was at Martin Luther King Community Clinic. And I was like, man, that's kind of weird. So I went over there and and uh, I met met with the uh, she's now the director, Miss Lady Bars, and and um, Doctor Chu, uh, you know, the hiring uh, ophthalmologist uh, uh, for Baylor, and uh, and uh, I got the I didn't hear anything back from, him, but I got the job. You know, I, I followed up with them about two weeks later, uh, and they said, "Yeah, we got the job. We're gonna bring you in for orientation and those kind of things." But you do know you're gonna be practicing at uh, MLK. Hey, that's fine with me. Uh, so uh, community, the community health setting, is, it isn't well publicized. For whatever reason, um, but you know, most of the people I see there are uh, low-income uh, people without insurance. So you have to qualify. You, one, you have to prove that you live in Harris County. Easy, done. And then you have to qualify. I can't remember what the percentage rate is. You got between. I think it's within one hundred and twenty-five percent of the poverty level. So you would not. I mean, in a city this big, of course, that's a lot of people. But you can't even grasp it until they you see it right so you know when i was talking to you on the phone and i told you yeah most day, most days i'm booked out three months in advance solid uh, and this is before covid solid uh and uh you know you just kind of go in there uh you, you, it's just optometry you know it's just the basic principle of, of optometry it's just nothing's changed from when i was working with dr lagunas to now just the patient base that's it that's it. All you're doing is applying what you've learned in school to an underserved population. That's it. The uh, the the kind of the drawback of community health is that when you so when you have so many patients, that creates a bottleneck of, of, of people trying to get in. Again, that's why I'm booked out three months in advance. And like I said, this that's not because I'm an awesome optometrist. I like to think that I am, but really it's because it's a, it's the need of people who really want to get their eyes checked. You know, want to seek care, and uh. But I like it a lot. I've been there about seven years now. Uh, you know, it, it, that doesn't mean it doesn't come without its challenges. But, you know, uh, it's very rewarding work. Uh, you know, you just you go in there, you do the job and, and you go home. I, uh, if it's something I can help you with, I'll take care of it. If we need to refer you out, then that's what we do. Uh, you know, it's sim simple enough, simple enough. Are you able to delve down into the important corners of practice, whether it's general contact lenses or scleral contact lenses, uh, pediatrics? Um, are there any limits? Um, there, the um, uh, the yeah, exactly. So the, the services is, is based off of, uh, tax dollars, county tax dollars. So, uh, they'll do an exam and they'll get you, you know, where we can get you a prescription for glasses, unless there's a medical necessity, then there's no contact lenses at all. Um, and even then, you know, that kind of comes with its own yellow tape, but no, there's, as far as, uh, the age I see, no limit at all. I, in one day, I, I could have a, a three-year-old, and then you know my oldest patient, I can have a hundred and three-year-old, and, and, I, and uh, she keeps and she comes back and see me every year. I don't, I don't, I don't know why, but <laughs> it's like you know, at this age, you've you've had enough eye exams. Like you, we won't, we won't get mad at you if you miss one or two <laughs> at this point. <laughs> Your ad's not going to change anymore. Exactly, exactly. We can't, we can't give you more than what we what you have in there. <laughs> What, you know, rural health centers and community health centers serve a really important purpose. Do you think optometry students should better understand these career opportunities? You know, tell us. Absolutely, man. Because I, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure where uh, we get uh, to the point. Sometime throughout optometry school, and that's probably because who they invite in to come speak to us. Like, <laughs> we see private practice and we see corporate. And then that's it. I didn't know anything about the VA, uh, that uh, optometrist was at the VA till I went on one of my rotations. Hey, man, this is pretty nice. 
you know, everything set up for you. They got all the equipment and everything. Like, this is pretty nice. But I would say, uh, and that's what we try to relate to the members of our club. So, you know, a few of them are starting optometry school this year, and they have these grand ideas about what they're going to do. And then that's when me and Dr. Johnson come in and say, well, you know, keep your options open. You never know where you may land, you know. Uh, and uh, like I said, I, I just happened to land in community health, and, and it's my best it's my best fit. Um, Dr. Johnson called me one day, um, and she said, hey, you know, uh, they got a community health uh, optometry uh, position in Dallas, Texas. What do you think about it? I said, I think you need to go to the interview. And then the rest is history. Like she's been there for about six or seven years too, right? So, uh, you know, it's, it's a really good it's a really good opportunity to give back uh, to the community that you serve, and it's an excellent opportunity to educate uh, the patients while they're in your chair. Every single day, I get a patient who's never had an eye exam. Never, ever, you know, and, and like I said, we got pay, patients coming from all corners of the globe uh, and they, they come in and, and they say, oh, yeah, I never had an eye exam. This is my first time. And I said, oh, welcome. You know, I, I kind of joke with them. I said, oh, congratulations. Glad you found us. You know, something like that. But, you know, but that gives them the power. Like, you know, you made a good decision in coming in today. But, you know, uh, you know, if, if it's more routine stuff, you know, we just getting you set up with some uh, glasses or something, then perfect. If it's, you know, you're coming in and we look at you for your first time and you have end-stage glaucoma, then that's a different conversation, you know. Yeah. But, uh, and I, I you know, I, I don't I don't sugarcoat things, but I do try to phrase it in a way to give the patients some power. Like, hey, you know, there's nothing we can do uh, before you came in today. Don't even think about it. It's water under the bridge. But let's start with from today and let's do everything we can from today moving forward. And most times, you know, they uh, people are pretty appreciative of that, you know, because you can just... You can just tell somebody, hey, man, uh, you know, nothing I can do for you, man. You're going blind. But what kind of taste is that leaving the patient's mouth? Like, right. you you just defeated them before you've even, you know, before you even had a chance to explain the diagnosis, right? So, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, so, uh, you know, being in community health, it, it uh, you know, because you will see these things. Uh, you know, my, my preceptor used to say, if it's in your chair, then it's not rare. Uh, you'll see these things, and it gives you a chance to, uh, to educate and really make a difference. And just for the audience, the Dr. Johnson you're speaking about is one of our former Sandbox Stories guests, Dr. Essence Johnson, and she practices at Parkland Hospital in Dallas, Texas. And I really want you to watch that video as soon as you're done with this one, because I know she's a mentor to you. We'll talk a little bit more about that, but I just want to mention that to the audience. Now, yeah, back to that topic of, you know, kind of endearing yourself to the patient and earning their trust. I know that's a big thing for you. I know one of the instructors that worked with us when I was in clinic before I was a doctor in, in optometry school, um, taught me how not to talk to patients. I, I thought that yeah. the doctor thought that he was kind of funny when he'd say to a very elderly glaucoma patient with end-stage disease that wasn't taking their drops, would you like us to help you pick out the color of your dog today so you can see it before you go blind? Right. <laughs> and, right. and it was shocking, and I hated to hear it, but it taught me what not to do. And right. I hear you talking about this this activity you do with these patients. You are actively engaging in, mm -hmm. in gaining trust. And it's one thing with a glaucoma patient. It's another one someone who's never had an eye exam and doesn't understand it next. Is it literally just sort of connecting with the patient on their level? Is there something more you can tell us that would be, uh, you know, helpful to the audience? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I would probably say, uh, in most settings, you know, doesn't matter the setting. Uh, if a patient's in your chair, then they, that means that they made the decision to come and see you. Uh, you know, in Houston, there's a lot of optometrists, but if the patient's in your chair, they made a decision to come you, uh, come see you. So whether they they found you uh, by accident or word of mouth, the neighbor or something told them, or they did a Google search or whatever else, then that's the chance for you to really make the difference. But you know, uh, an example is, uh, you know, since we're touching on glaucoma, you know. If, if a patient's not using their drops, the, the first thing that usually comes to the doctor's mind is this patient is just non-compliant, uh, you know, which could be the case. But why are they non-compliant? You know, is it is it because they're just not taking the drops or can they not afford the drops? That's a different, you know, that's a different topic there. Right. So, you know, uh, you know, just try to be human with the patient. Like, you, There's no reason for you to go in there with, you know, acting like Superman with the S on your chest. Like. They're coming to see you. You provide a service. This, is, I mean, it is optometry. It is medical services. But it's also customer service as well. You know, uh, uh, th that doesn't mean that the customer's always right or the patient's always right. But, you know, that's, that's where the doctor comes in, right? But, uh, no, uh, just kind of just just try to relate to them and try to connect with them. 
every time and anytime I'm done with the patient, uh, you know, I'm getting ready to walk out. I ask them if they have any questions, anything, you know, and, and they think they thank me not. And I say, no, thank you for coming to see me today. Right. Right. I say, you know, thank yourself for coming to, uh, to have the eyes checked, but thank you for coming to see me. So like I said, you want to give the patient as much power as they can. Uh, uh, you know, early on, you were just, you know, I was just kind of saying like, you need to do this. You need to do that. You need to do this. It's a, it's a, it's a combination effort. You know, so I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting that you do this and I want you to do it. Uh, but if there's a reason why you can't do it, then let's revisit, let's revisit our, our plan of action. Right. So, uh, I think I think sometimes, you know, especially kind of early out of school, you're like, ah, oh, man, I know all this stuff, and, and and the patient doesn't know as much as I know, and uh, I can just do this, that, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but that's not going to work. Like if you want to retain, if you want to retain a patient, you want to, you know, gain their business, gain their trust, then you need to kind of, you know, uh, relate to them on a human level. Like, you know, I, I, you know, a lot of the time, Scott, I go in there and I won't even uh, say I'm Dr. Cleaver. I usually just say. I'm Cleaver because that's what everybody calls me at the clinic, okay. and, and and that's fine. You know, uh, you know, I, I've earned the title of doctor. I've, I've been a doctor for the last ten years. I, I'm okay if you call me Cleaver or or or, or Jacoby or, or something like that. You know, those those things really don't bother me. But if they feel that if they feel that they connected with you, you gain the patient for a lifetime. There's a good chance that you're probably going to gain the patient's uh, family members, and you're going to have a patient that's more compliant with whatever you ask them to do. Uh, like I said, I see, I see patients all the time and, uh, I usually tell them, Hey man, you know, everything looks good. Uh, you know, we got a new prescription for you. If you want to get some new glasses, perfect. If you want to kind of, uh, continue with what you have now, that's fine too. Uh, but, uh, come back and see me in a year. Uh, and it doesn't matter if you don't have any problems. I want you to come back and see me. That same patient will pop up on the, in a year from now. And I, I go and I say, well, what can I do for you? And he'll, he'll be like, nothing. Uh, get my eyes checked because you told me to come back. I said, well, that does sound like something I say, but <laughs> so welcome back. Welcome back. Yeah. But uh, like I said, uh, you know, if you can kind of build those relationships and, and, and don't worry about all these outside factors, you know, don't worry about the money or, or, or any of that other uh, stuff, then, uh, then you just get providing the service then you'll retain the patient. You, you, there's no substitute for good work, you know, uh, for good, honest work, you know, right? So, uh, and uh, that's kind of what I build, especially being in this community's uh, health set, you know, uh, no, there's no optical there that I get points off of for selling glasses or, or any of those things. But, uh, but it allows me to get one-on-one with the patient about the eye health, which leads to everything else, right? You know, systemic concerns and, and, and those kind of things. But like I said, if you had, I had the time to talk to them there. That's exactly what I'm going to do. Uh, and, uh, I answer all the questions they have and, until uh, either I lose my voice or I'm just tired of answering questions. Yeah. <laughs> one of my friends that was a market as a marketing expert said to me one time that the S that Superman and Superwoman wear on their chest is on the patient's jersey, not on ours. And once right. you realize that they're the hero for showing up, then the doctor can take some credit for delivering great care. And I think that's exactly what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it's, it's just you know, there's there's no need. Like, check the ego at the door, right? Yeah, you know, and uh, you know, in my, in my time, I've had some, uh, had some patients that uh, we didn't get off on the on the best foot, or or you know, we was just kind of, you know, <laughs> kind of clashing for for lack of a better term. And and then you you know, by the end of the exam, uh, you know, the the mood's a lot lighter. Uh, it's better, you know, the, you know, the atmosphere is a lot clearer, you know, so, uh, and then, you know, you kind of walk in your head like, man, you know, I wouldn't mind if I didn't see that patient anymore, you know, because <laughs> it, it was that rough, but then they come back in the, they come back in a year. Oh, you made it back. <laughs> All right, so, so it, it works both ways. It works. I have a, uh, I have a patient, man. Uh, she, she, she's rough. She's tough. Uh, uh, she, uh, she has, uh, she was diagnosed with MS. Uh, uh, some time ago, the first time I've ever seen her, she came in with a bag of no less than 10 glasses and she wanted us to read them all. I had to check her vision for distance. I had to check her vision for up close. I had to check it for intermediate. I mean, everything, you know, this, we talking about school type examinations here, right? <laughs> you know, we're not doing this in the real world, right? But everything, everything. And, uh, you know, I said, oh, you know what? Well, you know, your vision's twenty twenty, but Keeping in mind, she has MS. So 2020 in an MS patient isn't 2020. 
in a patient without MS, right? So, you know, you really have to spend those time uh, talking to her. Like, you know, the vision isn't bad, but, you know, keeping in mind that you have this condition that did affect your optic nerve. And then, like, if you break it down like that, then it's a lot better. But no, I've been seeing her for the last seven years. She comes back every year. It's a lot more pleasant to see her now than it was in the beginning. <laughs> so you mentioned earlier that you're married. What does your wife mm -hmm. do? She's, um, I don't want to, she was a teacher, but now she's a head of the, uh, the science department at the middle school, okay. uh, out here, but, uh, the biology, uh, out here. And she's been doing that. Uh, oh man, she's been doing that before I went to optometry school. So, so for quite some time and, and uh, she's good at it. She, uh, you know, back when COVID hit and she was doing a lot of the meetings from the house and so she was just like directing all the zoom, like, oh man, Ash, I didn't know you had it in you, you know, uh, but, uh, yeah, no, she's, uh, she's, uh, backbone she does great everywhere and she does everything i needed to do and everything i don't need her to do you know uh, and uh, it's, it's been uh it's been a a good ride thus far so how did you nearly lose her on the london subway <laughs> yeah, she may she may uh she may get upset if she uh hears me telling this story but no we went to uh you know it was two years after we got married two or three years after we got married and and uh you know <clears throat> at the time we were just you know, getting married and we spent on the wedding and uh, I, I'll take you to, to London and, and Paris uh, one day, right? Well, you know, you, you, you know the thing about promises, one one day you got to kind of cash in on those, right? So so we, we made it to London and, and uh, I just have this thing about written cars and uh, in other places. I, and I, I hate written cars. I don't like anything about it, man. I don't like the cost of it. I don't like the insurance. I don't like anything of like the anxiety that comes with written cars. I just hate it. So I said, oh, Ash, we can just take the the, the, the subway to get to our hotel. And she said, okay, cool. So uh, we was, you know, I had it on my phone, what time it was leaving and that kind of stuff. And we was on the ramp and I'm pulling the bags and, and uh, I rushed to get on. And then I said, I asked, I said, we on our way. And I, I looked back. It was just like a movie. I looked back and the door was closing and she was on the other side of it. My eyes lit up. I, <laughs> I said, man, I just lost my wife in uh, in London. I said, I do not know how I'm going to tell her mom that I lost that. You know, <laughs> yeah, it, it, was, it was that big a deal. But, you know, uh, we had already discussed like, yeah, but we're just getting out. We're just riding in for one stop. We get off at the next stop. Man, I got off on the next stop. That was the longest wait in my uh, of my life. It, it must have been about five minutes. It wasn't long at all, but it felt like an eternity. And then when she got off the, uh, when she got off on the stop, we just laughed at each other, man. <laughs> oh. She said, you almost lost me. I said, I know I did. I don't know how I was going to tell your mom that I lost you out here, but <laughs> that is a wonderful story. Well, it's a foundation for a great relationship going forward. I want to dive into your work with black eye care perspective. As you know, we've had the honor of having Adam Ramsey and Essence Johnson, both on sandbox stories and you're an advisor to the Pre-Optometry Club, and you were telling me a story about a young man named Dimitrik. Would you be willing yes. to share his story? Because you've talked about the club a number of times here, and it's an incredible mm -hmm. idea you have. Tell us about that. Yeah, so he, uh, so uh, the uh, Dimitrik Jones, uh, he is an exceptional, exceptional young man. So uh, his story is, and then I can kind of double back into why the club is important. So his story was that he was originally interested in going to optometry school years ago, five, six, seven years ago. Uh, stellar GPA. I mean, this on paper, this is, this guy's excellent. He, he didn't do as well as he wanted to do on his OAT the first time around. Uh, that got into his head. And he said, you know what, maybe I'm not uh, cut out for this. So he stopped pursuing it. Uh, and he, you know, he went to work uh, and he's been working ever since and, and those kind of things. And uh, he uh, he joined the club. And, and once you join the club and fill out the membership deal, uh, Dr. Essence Johnson and I will meet with you. We'll have like a, a Google meet and greet session with you. And uh, and it's, it's really laid back, you know. Uh, you just kind of come and we'll just shoot the fat over or whatever. And, uh, but no, Demetri showed up, man. And this guy had on a shirt and a tie and a and a, and a, and a jacket. I said, "Hey, man, it's not an interview. We <laughs> we just trying to get to know you, man." But you know, but you know, uh, he took it that serious. So he said, "Man, what do you think? Uh, what do you think uh, I can do?" I said, "Man, you should have applied seven years ago." And you know, and he said, "Yeah, I just kind of talked myself out of it." Then, but you know, he said, "But they want me to take the re retake the OAT because it's been so long." 
uh, uh, you know, since the last time he took it, and uh, he he retook it, and and uh, he's gotten uh, a few offers, and uh, he's made his selection uh, of what school he's going to go to, and he'll be starting in the fall, you know. So you know, just like that, and uh, like I said, he's an exceptional guy, and you know, I, I kind of pick on him because uh, there's not a lot of guys in the, in the club. You know, uh, we have about 60, 65 members now, maybe four or five of them are, are, are male. So, uh, you know, I really try to connect with him on that, you know, you know, as far as that's concerned. But he's an exceptional, exceptional guy. He's going to be a great optometrist. I mean, he has it. He he if, he just kind of got in his own way. Most times that's what happened with, with human beings. Like we kind of we can either talk ourselves into something or we can talk ourselves out of something. Uh, you know, but like I said, man, if you went to school seven years ago, we've been colleagues already, you know, <laughs> you know right. but uh I said, but I can, I can wait four years for you. Yeah, but he's he's going to be great. He's going to be great. And and you're focused on students that are in college at historically black colleges and universities, and trying to give them a sense that optometry is a really great potential career for them. And you're starting to get this thing going. It's it's growing, is it? Yes, yes. So the 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 original premise was that we was going to increase the uh, black representation on optometry to better reflect the thirteen percent of the population. We was going to go directly to the source, and the source is HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities. Uh, the thought was that we were going to have a, a one or two black optometrists go to each HBCU. It's like a hundred of them. Uh, and uh, each HBCU on one day but deliver the same message at the same time, and you know that way and from that interest, we was going to get them to filter into the club. Uh, but, of course, COVID had other uh, plans. So um, what we did, uh, we ended up doing the virtual deal. But even before uh, the Impact HBCU uh, uh, program that Dr. Johnson uh, hosted and everything, uh, we was getting people signing up for the club. Our first meeting, we had uh, we had uh, maybe eight or nine uh Students. Two of them was already in optometry school, but no, the rest was interested in becoming optometrists. Uh, and none of them, maybe one, but most of them didn't come from my HBCU. They came from other, you know, uh, universities, public universities, private universities, universities, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. So what we found out is that, especially with a lot of them, that they didn't have the support. So, uh, you know, one example is that uh, one young lady said, yeah, I was interested in optometry, but, and I wanted to ask my counselor about it. And it he didn't know, he or she didn't know anything about it. And uh, Dr. Johnson said, well, does your counselor wear glasses? <laughs> and she said, yeah. And then, uh, Dr. Johnson was like, well, he or she needs to know something about optometry. Where is she getting her glasses from, right? So uh, it's just one of those things. It's just, it's just a total lack of support. So even though we was ho- focusing in on the HBCUs, uh, just joining the club and social media, obviously, you know, that allows us to cast a wider net. Yeah. So that's why we have gotten so many, you know, and we hold, I think we had our first meeting in either July or August or something like that of last year. And then, uh, you know, we have them on meetings on the 13th of every month and we bring in a speaker from, you know, the optometry world. And, and then usually, uh, recently we've been working from with Mike, who is a performance psychologist, you know, uh, the whole deal is mastering your mindset, uh, which we think is going to be powerful for them once they get into school. Cause as you know, Optometry school is extremely difficult. <laughs> you know, so you, you need you need to know how to uh, to celebrate the wins and, and not take the losses so hard. But uh, yeah, but now we've uh, since we started with eight or nine uh, members, we have over sixty five now, and it's it's growing. I mean, uh, Doctor Johnson, when we set this up. And it just started, you know, most things do. You just start with a text message. Dr. Johnson said, let's start a club. I said, all right, whatever. <laughs> yeah. She said, well, I'm going to make the social media. And, and if you if you know Dr. Johnson, she moves quick. She, so, so even though she's telling me this, she already has it in her mind, but this is what's going on. And so it's, it's not like she's asking me. And the first <laughs> Instagram post was probably already out. Yeah, yeah, she's she's telling me what what uh, what what we need to do, and then uh, like I said, from social media, like it seems like every week we get at least two or three more members, and everybody's in different uh, stages of the careers. We we try to get them, we want them as early as juniors or seniors in high school. That way, we can really get them and kind of get them on the schedule and the calendar when to take the OAT and those kind of things. But uh, you know, in the case of uh, Dimitri, uh, he's uh, what they would be considered a non-traditional student since he's been out of undergraduate for quite some time. Right. So, uh, but so that's just the, you know, the range of people we have in our club. And, uh, uh, and uh, I think I, I enjoy the clubs as much as they do because uh, it's, it's a good time. It, you know, when you, when you're working with someone and in the beginning and you feel, ah, oh, man, and you know, I, I don't know if I got what it takes to go to optometry school and, and, and the whole thing is changing the mindset and, 
And uh, we had one young lady who applied to like 23 schools, all 23 schools. If, if you can afford to do that, great. Uh, but uh, she said, well, we asked her, why did you apply to so many? She said, well, what if I don't get in? I said, you need to stop. You need to change your mindset now. What if you get into all these schools? You go, are you going to go to 23 interviews? <laughs> he said, no, man, that stuff's expensive. I mean, and uh, you know, luckily they was doing virtual interviews. But, uh, you know, if you got to fly from coast to coast doing interviews, trying to decide on which optometry school to go for, like, you need to narrow down your options. You know, th- that's, not, uh, that's not practical and, and, and you know, it doesn't, it doesn't make a whole bunch of financial sense. But, you know, to, cre- to that, like your reason for going to school on the West Coast has to be different from going to the school on the East Coast. Like, so you you just can't you know throw them you know th- throw the chips up in the air and just let them fall where they lay. Like it, it doesn't work like that. Like you got need to have a concerted effort uh, and kind of plan these things out. Yeah. So uh, yeah, but the mindset. I mean, and I think we have about uh, I want to say between sixteen and twenty that will be uh, starting school in the fall. The mindset from beginning to now is incredible. I mean, you, I mean, we're literally watching these people grow up in front of them. They went from thinking, man, I don't have a chance to get into optometry school to, man, I got my pick of optometry school. Which one I need to go to? Hey, it's simple. Go, go to which one that makes you feel the best, you know? <laughs> but uh, no, the, uh, the club is, uh, I, don't, I definitely didn't foresee it growing like it did. Because um, it's, it's busy. It keeps us extremely busy. I mean, every day... Uh, you know, every day I get a text message from one of them asking something about something or another or, or some advice about something, which which is fine. I, you know, that's, uh, that's what I want from them. I want them to know that uh, they do have the support. They can text or call or email me at any time. But, uh, you know, Dr. Johnson and I it kind of stepped back for a little bit and said, you know, what do we we know what we want them to have from the club because they didn't have anything before. But this club is for them by them. So from that, we elected, we had them do, uh, we set up some officers. We got a president, vice president, and a secretary. Now they're running the show, you know, so they invite who they want to invite to the meetings. And like I said, this is all, all about giving them the power, right? So, uh, you know, uh, Lauren, Lauren Price is our president, and she, uh, she said, yeah, I think I want to invite such and such from this school. All right, perfect. She said, what do I need to do? I said, email them. <laughs> it's just that easy. I asked them if they're available, right? And she said, well, I've never done that before. And, you know, well, I, well, we're not going to do it for you. Like, this is for you to make the connections. Uh, and it also shows them that optometry isn't this, uh, even though we ha- it's 44,000 of us, it's a small, tight-knit community. Yeah. Now, most times, if you reach out to somebody, they'll, they'll respond right back to you in, in, in no problem. Like, if, if they can do it, they will. If, if they can't, then it's usually they got something double booked that day or something, right? So. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, but no, uh, the club, the club has been awesome, man, and uh, you know they're growing, and, and uh, you know hopefully we are educating and, and, and getting the next wave of optometrists ready. That's fantastic because roughly three percent of optometry students identify as black today, mm-hmm. and your Black Eye Care Perspective group has asked for the thirteen percent promise initiative to be invoked by as many different types of businesses, including schools and colleges as possible. And this is really going to drive for that and um, support you and uh, offer participation and assistance as you need it, because uh, it's a tremendous activity. Thank you for doing all that. Absolutely. Like I said, uh, you know, at the the time, uh, you know, you know, 2020 was rough. I mean, uh, you it, it was extremely rough. Uh, and if you can kind of find your hobby or something else to kind of take your mind off of some of the outside factors, and then it, it really helps you uh, kind of recharge and refocus. And that's, and that's what the club has done for, done for me, you know, and, uh, and I tell the students that all the time. Like, yeah, you, you're the ones getting ready to go to optometry school and, and this club is for you, but it, it, uh, it helped me uh, just as much because 2020 was rough. I mean, and that was supposed to be the year of the optometrists and the, <laughs> right. the high masters and everything. It was tough. 2020 was, I almost want to just kind of forget about it. (laughs) Well, I'd like to finish by better understanding you. What gives you joy in life? Man, you know, before the world shut down, I'm a pretty simple guy. You know, uh, I really just kind of like watching watching movies. Uh, Hopefully, post-COVID, we can go back to the movie theater. You know, I I know it's... I know that's not exciting to most people, but I really just like going to the movies, man. <laughs> you know, and uh, it, it, does, it doesn't really matter what it is. Uh, you know, around here, you know, my wife and I, we we like all the scary movies and, and, and those kind of things. And, and uh, you know, my niece is the same way. But 
and I, you know, so usually when we go to the movies, it's, it's me, my wife, and the, and and my niece. And I think my niece just likes going because she, you know, we go to those movie places where you can eat, you know, they they oh, yeah. can just off the menu or whatever, and, and she's just ordering like all kind of crazy stuff and milkshakes. And I think she just go because she gets a meal out of it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, so, but no, uh, so, uh, you know, the movies is definitely one. Um, now, I, I, I definitely enjoy traveling. I, I'm not sure what it's going to look like post-COVID, um, you know, but I would definitely like to kind of get back into, into doing that. We was able to do a few places uh, since I've graduated. We went to Thailand and uh, Paris and London and, um, you know, a couple of places around the state, Seattle, and you know, my, my wife's a big Starbucks fan, so we had to go watch, go look at the oh, yeah. original Starbucks. But yeah, we can get some more traveling in. That that would be good, um, and uh, just just more, just taking advantage of more family time. Like uh, I really like. I don't want to sound too cliche, but I really like the holidays. You know, I like the more traditional holidays with. Uh, you know, Thanksgiving and uh, and uh, Easter and uh, and Christmas. You know, just because. Everyone is, I mean, not just my family, but everyone is in such a great mood around those times, right? You know, and there's no reason not to be, uh, uh, in my opinion, but, you know, it's just time to kind of connect with everybody and, and, and laugh and and, uh, and, uh, and just kind of reminisce and everything. But, you know, I, I kind of, as far as Christmas is concerned, I kind of miss White Elephant, you know? <laughs> you know, but between, uh, between, uh, b- between my family uh, and uh, my wife's family, man, White Elephant is a pretty big deal, you know? Uh, it, uh, or my family is more of like gag jokes and and, and, and gifts and, and those kind of things. No, on Ash's family, like it's serious. Like, uh, you know, it's real gifts in there. You know, there's usually a, a envelope with with, with fifty dollars or a hundred dollars in there or something. And and, and man, it it gets hairy over there, man. But uh, <laughs> but uh, the only rule in White Elephant uh, with my wife's family is that you cannot steal from Granny. Uh, <laughs> granny can take whatever gift she wants. So if you have the hundred dollars and she wants it. Then it belongs to her, but you cannot steal from Granny, no matter the circumstance. <laughs> I love that. Well, I got to tell you something. We've uh, covered a lot of ground, and your personality is big, and your contribution to optometry so far is substantial. And I am here to support you along that way. Just promise me that if we ever go anywhere, you'll let me keep my hand on your shoulder so I don't get left behind. Ah, yeah, for sure. For and, sure. Uh, you know, thanks so much for sharing your incredible and compelling stories, Dr. Jacoby. Thank man. Scott, thanks for having me, man. I really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. It's great. And to the audience, I hope you enjoyed Dr. Cleaver's stories. And I hope that uh, you'll find him along your path in your career. Until my next sandbox story, be great at all you do.